Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Coming up, we discuss a newly developed metric for evolutionary and conservation genetics, and we see a prime example of why it's always good to apply new genetic tools to conservation genetic questions that we already think we have the answer to. Now, as scientists, we like to think that we're always being as fair as possible. But the truth is, most of our work focuses on just a handful of species. So today, we're taking the time to appreciate the lessons that we can learn from often overlooked taxa. First up, we talk to Dr. William Goodall Copestake, a researcher at the British Antarctic Survey and sole author on the recent heredity paper, NRDNA-MTDNA Copy Number Ratios as a Comparative Metric for Evolutionary and Conservation Genetics. Now, Will's work focuses on a group of zooplankton called salps which are filter-feeding genicates that kind of resemble floating sacks of transparent jelly. Through an unplanned series of events and insights, Will followed these sops on a journey that would take him on a voyage across the Atlantic and Southern Oceans to arrive at a new and exciting destination, an entirely new metric for looking at functional genetic variation. But I'm betting that for a fair few of you, this will be the first time that you've even heard of a salp. So why choose to study such an obscure group of animals? The reason I targeted these two species was that I've been studying one of them for quite a few years, Alpha Thompson and I, and this study sort of came about as a, um, a brainwave I had whilst studying the mitochondrial DNA of that species. For the, the second species, I, I actually picked it because it seemed like one of the best comparative species to sort of face off against Alpha Thompson and I. This is a Sapophusiformis. I was lucky enough to collect that just off Gough Island back in uh, 2013. What was the experience like of collecting these things? Because I imagine you went there yourself on the boat, and it's kind of a bit different to how most geneticists would work. When I collected the second species, Sapophusiformis, it was actually part of a larger survey, looking at biodiversity around uh, Gough Island and also uh, Tristan de Kuna, in fact. And um, everybody knew that I uh, quite like looking at salps. And so uh, when I saw these animals come up, I made sure I put them to one side and uh, saved them for future analysis. And uh, little was I to know that a couple of years later, they'd be more or less one of the best comparative groups I could use to face off against uh, Salpa Thompson. I, I suppose to do with field work, even though I'm a geneticist who spends most of his time in the lab or on the computer, I've been increasingly spending a lot of time working at sea, and this paper felt quite special to me because I actually submitted it whilst I was crossing the Drake Passage on my way to the Antarctic Peninsula. No way. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's quite funny because when I was submitting it, it was, a, it was a little bit rough, and obviously it was the usual comedy of the mouse jumping off the table and everything else in the computer lab. That is very different to what I think most people's experiences of being a genetics researcher should be. So I guess moving on to the genetics proper, because that's what this paper is. Uh, mm-hmm. Your study is looking at the ratios between nuclear ribosomal <coughs> DNA and mitochondrial DNA, and I'm yes. sure these will be familiar terms to the people listening, but maybe you could just refresh our memories as to what these are and why you're looking at them and what your main aim was in the study? They're both what they call multi-copy loci. They're present in multiple copies in genomes. So they've classically been a target for molecular ecologists for a long time when people uh, extract DNA to uh, identify the nature of a species or how diverse it is or how related they are. But uh, as well as being useful as markers in that sort of investigative sense, the molecular ribosomal DNA, it's essential for protein synthesis. Mitochondrial DNA is essential for energy production. And because of this, there's a few authors have been advocating over the years that these DNA regions are interesting to study in their own right for their role in the organism, as well as as markers of species identity and relationships. And I suppose this paper, in a sense, is continuing that message to say, let's continue looking at these DNA regions because they can tell us a lot about how organisms maybe have adapted to their environment, which in turn provides an insight about how organisms may have evolved. And also importantly, 
perhaps how resilient they will be to future climate change. So what is it exactly that you were aiming to accomplish by comparing these ratios? I didn't set out to propose a new method to help uncover functional DNA differences in the first place. But as happens a lot in science, I conceived this paper whilst working on something else, which was actually more general genetics of the animals that are the focal group, the the SABs. And during the initial stages of my studies, I found out that the mitochondrial DNA appears to be a lot more dynamic than in other animals. It appeared to contain a sort of multiple configurations of duplicated genes. This happens quite frequently in plants. And I was inspired by the, the work of others on plants, actually, to try and estimate what the abundance of the different forms of mitochondrial molecule or submolecule were in SALPs in case it might be of functional significance. During the course of this process, I, um, I ended up comparing the abundance of mitochondrial DNA with the abundance of another type of DNA called nucleoribosomal DNA. This is essentially because there's background data for nucleoribosomal DNA available, so I could readily do that. Yeah, I was simply using nucleoribosomal DNA as a reference point for the quantity of mitochondrial DNA. Then I carried out some literature searches to discover if other scientists were doing the same thing, and I was surprised to find out they weren't. The more I thought about it, I realized that I was doing more than simply trying to investigate ratios of some dynamic forms of mitochondrial DNA. I had potentially had the basis of a, a new metric that could be used to look for functional DNA differences between uh, individuals and species. The idea just came, I suppose, yeah, from something else. I didn't think of it initially. Yeah, no, I, I imagine that that is something that many scientists are familiar with. But like you say, there's a couple of different species in this paper. It's, well, it appears anyway as though it's a completely new method. So I guess I'm quite keen to find out what your key findings in the study were and how you were applying this method. I already had an insight into the genetics of the, the polar species, Sapotomsnide, but what I needed was a, a non-polar species, ideally as closely related as possible, but lived in a different environment. And uh, as it happens, salps are mostly tropical, subtropical. So I picked one of the non-polar, Sapofusiformis, and what I speculated beforehand was that perhaps the non-polar Sapofusiformis and the polar Sapotomsonai would uh, have some physiological differences, and these may be reflected in the nucleoribosomal DNA to mitochondrial DNA ratios. And to test this, I, uh, I basically used two approaches, quantitative PCR and then high-throughput methods. What I basically found was the two approaches essentially concurred, and they did indeed reveal that there was a difference in the mitochondrial nucleoribosomal DNA to mitochondrial DNA ratio between the two species. And I was actually quite surprised how different the nucleoribosomal DNA content was. And it seemed to be the biggest driver of the difference in the ratio between the species. And when I, uh, when I looked at the, the sequence variation underlying what appears to be an increase in nucleoribosomal DNA in Salpa-Thompsonite, it essentially confirmed the hypothesis on Salpa-Thompsonite, which suggests that the number of copies of this gene has increased, probably to help produce more protein to counteract the low temperatures of the, the cold environment. The levels of mitochondrial DNA were more similar between the two species than the, the levels of the nucleoribosomal DNA. But uh, what was interesting was that the mitochondrial DNA of the polar species, Salpa-Thompsonite, appeared to contain signatures of DNA damage, and it could have originated for several reasons. However, when I read up on the adaptations of animal mitochondria to the cold, I found out that one of the most common ways by which certainly fish species adapt to the cold is by modulating the lipid composition of their mitochondrial membranes. But this comes at a cost of an increase of what they call reactive oxygen species, which can damage DNA. And this seemed to me to be a bit of a smoking gun of, well, have the, the salps undergone this kind of change? And 
I found that quite interesting because if this is happening, at least to some extent in Sal Thomas and I, then we can see on the one hand with the mitochondrial DNA, how the organism responded to the cold has actually resulted in what appears to be DNA damage, which is in contrast to one of the main explanations for what happened with the nuclear ribosomal DNA, which was a sort of positive adaptation to generate more protein to help the organism grow and live under cold temperatures. So I quite like the, uh, the different interpretations from the, the different results. Yeah, definitely. I think I was very conscious not to well, overinterpret either of the results because this was just a first look at what's going on, but it's a way in there. I mean, mm-hmm. we've mentioned a couple of times that this method appears to be completely novel, but I wonder what you think yeah. the strength of these uh, ratios are in comparison to other currently available metrics, and how do you think this method could be applied more broadly in other groups, and what kind of research questions we can use it to investigate? The value of this approach is as a, um, a tool for pilot studies and preliminary investigations, because with a lot of time and many resources, scientists can readily and directly look for potentially functional differences in DNA content between species. But when um, resources are limiting or when people are just starting out on a project and they just want to sort of dip their toe in the water of looking for functional differences due to adaptation, I think that's where using this uh, metric has a role because it's relatively cheap, relatively straightforward to do. And yet, if it can uncover differences, those can then be used as a smoking gun for far more detailed genetic analysis. So it's kind of an ideal method for dipping your toes into a non-model species in the wild and kind of getting a grasp on whether or not it's worth really investing a huge amount of resources in it. I think absolutely that. And uh, I'm fully aware that I picked one species, Sapa Thompsonai, where I knew there was something funky going on. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will explore it and I would like to explore it in the future to see um, how useful it really is. Because at the moment, people just aren't generating that kind of data. That was Dr. William goodall Copstake, a researcher at the British Antarctic Survey and sole author of the recent heredity paper, NRDNA-MTDNA copy number ratios as a comparative metric for evolutionary and conservation genetics. Now, as far as Will and I can tell, this is an entirely new method that he has developed. So he's really keen for people to go and have a read of the full paper and provide feedback and insights on its potential use and application across a diverse range of research fields. Up next, we have a two-for-one offer, as we speak to both Professor Brad Schaefer and Dr. Evan McCartney-Melstad from the University of California, Los Angeles. Combined, they make up two-thirds of the co-authors on the recent paper, Population Genomic Data Reveal Extreme Geographic Subdivision and Novel Conservation Actions for the Declining Foothill Yellow-Legged Frog. For the first time, this study uses new genomics methods to answer questions about the population structure of this species. Now, such studies have lagged behind with amphibians, largely due to the size of their genomes. The foothill yellow-legged frog's genome, for example, is about three times the size of a human's. And to be honest, that's pretty modest for an amphibian. However, this paper reveals why it's worth putting the money and effort into amphibian genomics, as it has revealed some surprising and unexpected population structure missed in previous genetic studies. In this paper, Evan was the mastermind behind the genomic analyses. And Brad? I'm more of the froggy guy. So it's only fitting that Brad gets us started by telling us why we should care about the population genomics of the foothill yellow-legged frog. The reason why we chose the foothill yellow-legged frog, there there are really two reasons. One is that it is a candidate for listing under the U.S. Endangered Species Act, and also species where, in this case, we felt that there was good reason to think that bringing all the tools of modern genomic analysis to bear on them might help with understanding them in a real conservation context. 
Yeah, and also it's a critical time for this species uh, legally in the United States. As Brad mentioned, it's under consideration for both state and federal listing under the Endangered Species Act under different kind of statuses. So it's, it's really a critical time to get a good sense of kind of the heterogeneity of how it's distributed genetically across its range. And one thing that was quite interesting is that in your paper, you discuss it as a sentinel species. So what exactly does that mean? I mean, a sentinel species usually just means that it's a sort of representative for a broader range of taxa or a broader range of conditions. Evan, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting frog species in that it breeds in moving water. So it's, it's associated with kind of stream habitats in California, which is, you know, in contrast to the pond breeding amphibians. So it does a good job of capturing the health of these stream habitats better than, than a lot of the other amphibians that we work on. And I think it is important to say that globally, and certainly in California, most frogs breed in still water. And so stream breeding ones are relatively uncommon and have the potential to be, you know, have a very different sort of lifestyle and very different population structure than pond breeding ones. It may be that when we were using the the term sentinel, we had also in mind kind of a canary in the coal mine kind of situation where amphibians tend to be pretty sensitive to environmental perturbations. So they can act kind of as an umbrella species and also as, a, as an early indicator of how the habitat is doing. Perfect. Well, I mean, I think uh, you've kind of explained really clearly why this is a really good species to study. Uh, but obviously, we're here to talk about genetics. And you do mention in your paper that there have been some earlier molecular studies on the foothill yellow-legged frog. So what was the main aim of this landscape genomic study? So the earlier study was based on mostly mitochondrial DNA and a single nuclear locus and looked at a lot of the same questions that we looked at here, namely trying to understand which parts of the range were most different from one another and to what degree their structure and how those different populations are related to one another. But largely because of using a single locus for most of this analysis and also because in large parts of the range, there's pretty low genetic diversity. There was very low genetic resolution in the earlier study. We, we had the idea that if we could you know, drastically increase the amount of genetic data that we collected, that we could really understand how the uh, species was structured across the range and to try to then answer questions uh, that are really pertinent to management. You know, are, are populations structured by watershed boundaries, or is there some other larger or more historical geographic processes that have structured these populations in space? Yeah. And just to add to that a little bit, the, the original study, which was led by Amy Lind when she was a graduate student in our lab, was a great study for its time. It clearly indicated there was some fairly substantial geographic variation and genetic differentiation among different watersheds and different regions. And it's been used very extensively in setting up certain management priorities for the species. But it was just limited by the available resources that we had at that time in terms of our ability to do genetics. And given its current listing status, given the call for information to help with listing, we felt like it was the ideal time to redo the study. 
you have no shortage of data in this study. Like you were able to collect an incredible amount of markers and you've used some really robust analyses as well. And in the paper, there are some really beautiful figures that explain what you found. But I guess, could you maybe just summarize the sort of key findings that you were getting in the study? Oh, thanks. A couple of things really jumped out at first. And among these were just the level of population structure present across the entire range and also the degree to which the samples from the southernmost part of the range in Monterey County are different from everything else, which is a really important conservation concern because this group of populations, they're the most different from everything else in the range, and they're kind of the last remnant of the southern part of the range of this species, which came all the way down towards Los Angeles. So just the total degree of structure was really surprising and the fact that these Southern California samples really st stuck out as completely different from everything else was a little surprising and very concerning. And I'd say also the degree to which we found different amounts of substructure within our different populations. So in Northern California and Oregon, basically half the state consists of a single population where all the frogs are, are nearly identical to one another, whereas in the Sierras and near the Bay Area and in Monterey County, populations that are separated by a few kilometers can, can be very different genetically. So that really stuck out as a, a surprising result. And do you know why these populations are so different, even though some of them can be quite close? The sort of obvious answer or the obvious hypothesis is that as you move from the San Francisco Bay Area south towards Los Angeles, the overall habitat becomes drier. And remember, this is a stream-restricted frog. They've got to have permanent flowing water. And uh, that just becomes sort of a rarer and rarer entity as you move south. And so frogs become isolated and separated from one another in those increasingly uncommon permanent streams where they can both live and where they can breed. It's also a big conservation concern, as Evan mentioned. If you look at the map in the paper, you'll see that from a little bit south of Monterey all the way down to Los Angeles is completely empty. And it's because they're extinct from that whole southern part of the range. And so it means you're losing disproportionately in the southern part of the range the areas that have the greatest levels of genetic variation and that sort of capture the greatest amount of evolutionary divergence within the species, also that potentially have the greatest potential for climate adaptation and things like that. So it's really that focus on deep genetic divergence in Central and Southern California was a really major finding, as, as Evan said. So I guess there must be some pretty big implications for how we might go about conserving or studying these different populations. From the standpoint of the samples at the far southern part of the range, you might see that empty part of the map and think, you know, this is a place that would be great for reintroductions. But what our genetic analysis is showing is that if you want to try to recapitulate what was there before, time and populations are really running out in terms of being able to let something back out into the wild that's similar to what was there before. Yeah. I mean, a, a major question that this brings up is whether or not that last remnant set of populations that still does exist in the area south of Monterey, whether that is in fact the genetic lineage that was historically all through Southern California 
there, there are a lot of frogs in museum collections from that southern part of their range, but they're all preserved in formaldehyde. And it's always been very difficult to get DNA out of those formal and preserved specimens. Uh, there's some new techniques and new advances that have come out recently that suggest that we may be able to overcome that. And if so, I think a really important future research project would be to try to use those museum samples to see whether or not that very, very, very distinctive genetic unit in the southwestern part of the range was in fact the unit that was present throughout Southern California. And if so, then, you know, give us a handle on what populations we should use for potential repatriation, which I think is an important future goal. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it's, it's looking more and more like we can. Evan, what's your, what's your take on that? Well, we're, we're working on it right now. A few steps away, there's jars on the bench that are filled with amphibians that have been preserved in formaldehyde. So we're trying. It's not only a question of getting the DNA out. It's also a downstream analysis question, trying to understand the ways in which formaldehyde has, uh, has damaged DNA and generated base substitutions and how to handle that bioinformatically to try to get your data as comparable as possible to the data you collected for the main study. So it's a, it's a sea of challenges, but it's also a really exciting area of, of future research. Obviously, this is a really interesting system. There's some really important conservation things that have come out of your study. But how might your research help feed into the work of others who are trying to combat amphibian declines and trying to come up with conservation strategies for amphibians in other systems? Like, um, what do you think is the sort of key method or the key insight that you've gained? There's uh, two take-home lessons from our study that I would emphasize. The first is that a frog is not a frog is not a frog. If you understand them in Northern California, that doesn't mean you understand that same species in Southern California. And the second is that even though an earlier study has been done and completed and was excellent for its time, you can learn a lot more if you can apply genomic tools compared to single gene or a few gene genetic tools. That was Professor Brad Schaefer and Dr. Evan McCartney-Mastad, both researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles. They are two of the three authors on the recent paper, Population genomic data reveal extreme geographic subdivision and novel conservation actions for the declining foothill yellow-legged frog. And I wasn't kidding about the figures. They really are great. You should definitely go check them out, and you know, while you're there, give the paper a read. Just as a final note on this, Brad and Evan were really keen to highlight the important role of the third and final co-author on this manuscript, and the knowledge exchange her involvement allowed. The third author on this paper, Muge Giddes, was a visiting scientist from Turkey in our lab at UCLA. Dr. Giddes is an amphibian and reptile specialist, and having her involved in this project gave us the opportunity to work with an international colleague, which was really great. And I'm sure it really was a great experience for them all. The quality of the work speaks to that. But I'm afraid to say it, that's all we have for this month's episode. My thanks to Dr. William Goodall-Copestake from the British Antarctic Survey and Professor Brad Schaefer and Dr. Evan McCartney-Malstad from the University of California, Los Angeles. These interviews were a little bit longer than usual, but I hope you can see why I just couldn't cut them down anymore. However, we still didn't have time to cover everything. So remember, you can access both of these papers online at www.nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also find out more about Heredity and how you can publish your research in the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. 
To keep up to date with the podcast and find out about breaking heredity news, you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. You can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter at GenSocUK and find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next month.